So welcome everyone. Um, I've introduced Ben Connolly. He's from the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center. He was ordained in 2009 and uh, teacher ordination in 2015. Uh, he teaches at the center in Minnesota and at Zen centers across the U.S. He teaches secular mindfulness in a number of settings, including police training, which sounds like Sherry Maples. Ah, uh, Sherry. Yes, she's done some of our retreats. Oh, wonderful. Uh, addiction recovery groups, wellness groups. He's a musician by profession, singer, songwriter, guitar teacher, film composer, and plays multiple instruments. His books include the ins include Inside the Grass Hut and others. God couldn't pronounce the names of some of the teachers <laughs> on the books. Um, his new book now is Mindfulness and Intimacy, and that will be his topic tonight. And I'll let him add anything else by way of introduction. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peggy. Uh, thank you, everybody, who did things so this could happen. So we're here. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I came in the door, and there were people, and they were laughing, and there were kids wrestling around, and it felt very warm and homey, and then it became very quiet and still, which is also very warm and homey to me. So I feel really good here, and I can tell that something beautiful is being made when I'm not here. So you go as we say, back where I come from. <laughs> and my, the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center is in this really big house. So a really big house full of people sitting on the floor, uh, just right at home. <laughs> so uh, I am going to just jump into talking about mindfulness and intimacy. Um, <clears throat> these are things that everybody knows how to do. Mindfulness and intimacy are natural capacities of human beings. Um, and people who come to a place like this are often people who've been really focused on cultivating their capacity to uh, realize them or manifest them. So, wonderful. But I think there is no limit to uh, how deep we can go. Or what, if, if there is a limit, I haven't found it. And I haven't met anyone who said, ah, cha. I got that all figured out. We're all done. So I kind of keep sticking with the, this basic theme. So uh, I'm going to just read you uh, the first paragraph of the chapter called Mindfulness and the first paragraph of the chapter called Intimacy from this book to give you a sense of how I'm approaching this subject. Mindfulness is being aware of things in the present moment in a way that promotes well-being. To practice mindfulness is to choose some aspect of our experience and focus attention there in a sustained way. There is discernment in mindfulness, but it is non-judgmental. It is kind. It allows the mind to rest in the phenomena of the present moment and take a break from creating a relentless stream of imaginations about the future, reviews of the past, or judgments of the present. Our awareness is one of the most amazing and powerful things we have as human beings. Rather than taking it for granted and allowing it to focus wherever the mind's habits choose, 
With mindfulness, we can better focus awareness on things that are truly beneficial. Intimacy, in its simplest definition, means close familiarity and friendship. Words, however, have power and meaning beyond their definitions. No matter what the dictionary says, some words evoke very different meanings or feelings to different people. To some folks, the word religion evokes inspiration, warmth, and wonder. To others, constriction and closed-mindedness. <clears throat> Intimacy is a word a bit like this. It can evoke feelings of connection and safety, but for some people, it's pretty scary or stickily sentimental. And then there are the folks who think it just means sex. You will be disappointed by this talk. <laughs> the, the speaker went out. They had thus, I noticed a sudden absence of uh, <laughs> sound reinforcement. <laughs> Is that the on switch? There oh. oh. Okay, well, if you can't hear me, um, this simple gesture will communicate that fact to me. So that works. Uh, yeah? Hearing something? So intimacy, having this range of meanings, and let me find my way. Here I will be pointing towards a way of understanding and experiencing the word intimacy that fosters compassion, calm, and joyful action. I use intimacy here as we often use it in Zen discourse. It's about harmony between autonomy and interdependence. In intimacy, we are individuals who are connected and we are also one undivided whole. We can develop both healthy boundaries and healthy boundarylessness. So yeah, the sex thing. So the first uh, book talk I gave on this, I came to a Thich Nhat Hanh community down in Florida called the Florida Community of Mindfulness. And it's quite large. They have this big church. And uh, I gave like a weekend retreat on some other material. And then I came in to do the Mindfulness and Intimacy talk, which is their kind of Sunday, like, main people just come from wherever. And the teacher came up before and he said, I just want to tell you, I recognize about two-thirds of the people, and the other thirds I've never seen before, and they're all couples. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I, 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 I gave the book the title I gave it. My last book was called Inside Vasu Bandhu's Yoga Chara. Still can't hear, so it's just going out. Yeah. <laughs> so, I wonder. There it is. Yep. Now, I wonder if you've got a battery issue on this unit. Generally speaking, this flashing light to me would indicate a battery. Oh, Lissai. <laughs> I don't know, but. Double A. All right. So. I'm going to keep talking, and I'm going to talk a little louder. So, we'll do our best here. It's all right. I, uh, we must respond to the conditions that arise. Anyway, so, uh, yeah. See, that all, there's all these couples in here. And I was like, oh, boy. What have I gotten myself into? But uh, hopefully, what we're doing here will be beneficial to any person who shows up. So, the way I use the term mindfulness is very conventional. 
So uh, I'm basing the way I teach mindfulness on the root texts on mindfulness, which are the four foundations of Mindfulness Sutra, from the earliest layer of Buddhist discourse from the Pali Canon, and then uh, on the exposition of that by kind of my favorite uh, inspiration as a Dharma teacher, Vasubhagya. So, and then my practice with those teachings. So that's pretty much like doing what the root thing is. The way I'm using the word intimacy is a little less conventional, right? So one of the reasons is that everyone actually understands that word differently. It's quite, people's responses are really various. So here, I'm going to use intimacy, uh, simplest way to put it is intimacy is how things are. Or uh, intimacy is what reality is like or what reality is. So if we take into our hearts one of the basic underlying principles of Mahayana Buddhism, then being a Mahayana school, then we recognize that um, all the phenomena and everything that has ever been and is anywhere, anywhere in the universe, all comes together uh, to produce any individual thing. For example, your sense right now that you're a person perceiving someone talking. The entire universe all comes together to form that thing. If you removed any part of the universe, it would be a different thing. It wouldn't be that thing. So, and not only is everything always producing each thing, but each thing is part of that process of production. So your moment of being here, and being like, oh, I'm having this experience, is conditioning the entire universe to produce whatever the universe will produce. So if everything is always entirely dependent on and supporting everything else, I don't know how things could be more intimate, close, or familiar than that. So, as I say, intimacy is how things are. But uh, usually we don't experience things that way. Usually we experience things from a position of alienation. Certainly, my guess is everyone in this room currently thinks that they're a distinct being separate from the universe perceiving things. Not necessarily true, because to perceive things in that way is only a habit of mind. But my guess is everyone is manifesting that very prevalent habit of mind to think that they're actually existing as separate. And then from there, we divide everything up into all these other separate little manipulatable objects. And Lord knows what happens after that. <laughs> so, at those times when we would describe ourselves as feeling intimate, and by that I say, like, you feel less separate, more connected, you feel more supported, you feel more like whatever you're doing is part of a process that's whole. At those times when we would describe that, from my perspective, those are just signs when we're a little bit closer to perceiving reality the way it actually is. <clears throat> so, uh, I wrote this book called Mindfulness of Intimacy, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is that we are involved in an amazing thing, the mindfulness movement. <laughs> so many of you probably were like, I might go to this talk tonight, or maybe I'll just go to the grocery store, and at the checkout line, I'll get the mindful coloring book. And then, <laughs> or you're like, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more serious, so I'll get the Time Magazine mindfulness supplement that's in the rack down there. 
right? You're like, yeah, but you know, really what I need is to go back and get In Shape Magazine's Mindful Rock Hard Abs article. <laughs> then I'll get it all taken care of at one time. That's kind of like current yoga in the United States. Mindful Rock Hard Abs. I'm a yoga practitioner. I can just. Um, so I see the magical approach of the batteries. Yeah, I think my diagnosis here is good in that the power is off again. So I'll let you uh, have some of that. So, um, how am I doing? Can you hear? Have you been able to hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, this is happening, and you know, uh, many people, I've been at a lot of like big Zen monasteries and a lot. I've been traveling for about a month. And, you know, the people there are like, I'm not doing mindful movements. I'm in a Zen monastery. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my job is to remind people that you can never be separate from anything. That's what intimacy is. Anytime you think you're separate from something, you're engaging in your relationship to it by believing you're separate. That's the way you're manifesting your relationship. Anyway... Try this again. Oh yeah! <laughs> now I can dance. It's gonna be good. Thank you very much. So, uh, so, so this is happening. There's a lot of really, and I participate in the secular. You know, I do mindfulness training for police, and I do a lot of work with recovering addicts and alcoholics. I myself being a person in recovery from addiction. Um, so I participate in the secular mindfulness world, um, and I hope it's helpful, but there are many really, really good critiques of how mindfulness, which has traditionally been, and for 2,500 years, has been a part of a religious tradition from Asia, um, is being appropriated into Western culture, predominantly by non-Asian people. Um, so people are really questioning a lot of ways this appropriation is happening, and I, I think it's, it's really good to be thinking about it. And there are lots of different critiques, and I'm not going to talk about even uh, a little bit of them, but I'm going to talk about the one that really underlies my work on this book. And that is the critique that points out that mindfulness um, is becoming something that could just help people to relax and go along with how things are in this country. Let's say you could go to your job and someone can teach you. Your, the people at the job say, we're going to hire a mindfulness trainer so people here will chill out and they'll just go with the flow, right? So you go to your job, you're required to do mindfulness training. Hey, your mindfulness trainer, they may or may not be really skilled. They may be teaching you how to just accept everything as it is. So I'm here to tell you I have no interest in people accepting everything how it is. Uh, we live in a country that is and has always been characterized by white supremacy and patriarchy. We live in a country where homophobia and transphobia are endemic, where anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are on the rise, violent anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. We live in a country where we have an economic system that is massively harmful to millions and millions of people, and we are participating in a process of consumption and production in this country which is destroying our family. Species are going extinct at a very rapid rate. And even the species that aren't going extinct are being harmed enormously by the way we consume. So 
Mahayana Buddhism is a tradition that is about liberating all beings from suffering. So I'm not sure the liturgy of the, the um, Thich Nhat Hanh school, but I know he understands this. You know, our liturgy, everything we do comes back to freeing everyone from suffering. We're not going to free everyone from suffering by just chilling out and letting all that really harmful stuff happen. Buddhism is about recognizing that there are patterns of harm and that we are part of them and that we have liberative capacity within that. So intimacy is a way of recognizing that since we're part of these, we always have an opportunity to do something beneficial within them, that we can be part of freeing people from these patterns of harm, which are always enacted through body, speech, and mind. People do them, and we're connected to those people, whether we like it or not. If you think they're super separate aliens, that's how you're doing your relationship. So, uh, the other thing is, with the mindfulness movement, I like going to secondary mindfulness training at all these places, and now everyone's doing it. You, Ten years ago, I'd be like, what is this? Now I'm like, oh yeah, we do this all the time. They're like, well, how do you do it? Well, you know, I got my app. <laughs> this is really fun talking about this when I was doing all my talks down in Silicon Valley two weeks ago half the people there were web developers <laughs> so I shouldn't bust on apps apps are helpful um, I know people who feel supported by them but if you start to tease apart the discourse of how mindfulness is being appropriated into our culture there's a tendency for it to appear to be something that we should do you should just be able to do alone just, you know, you cultivate a little mindfulness by yourself, you know, do 10 minutes of meditation. You could do it in your, in your house by yourself in the morning, and then, you know, you'll be a little more chill. And this is sad. This is a tradition that has all, the practice has always been embedded in the idea of community. And I'm just, everywhere I go, I'm talking to people who are coming together. So you get this. But we want to recognize that we're a part of how this is formed in this country. So communicating people, the value of community as part of a mindfulness tradition is it's really important. Because that's how we, that's psychologically the main way we will begin to really recognize intimacy is through community. So uh, mindfulness I will describe as an object-based practice. With mindfulness uh, you choose something out of the flux of reality, and you say, I'm focusing on this. So the first foundation of mindfulness is uh, mindfulness of body, and the first element of the first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of breath. You've probably heard of this. So we start the first thing, mindfulness of breath, allow mindfulness of breath to enable us to be aware of the whole body. So we're picking things out of reality to focus on. And then if you work through the text at more length, you start to notice um, things which are affective or emotional. So it's like, I'm going to be aware when there's desire, or aware when there's uh, aversion, aware when there's tranquility, aware when there's restlessness, aware when there's rapture, aware when there's hatred. So you have these lists of particular things that you're focusing on. So you take all of reality and go, I'm choosing this little thing to focus on. It was very helpful. I'm a big advocate. But Mahayana Buddhism, so mindfulness is the principal meditation practice of early Buddhism. Mahayana Buddhism, uh, which is a Zen, is a Mahayana school. If you read Mahayana literature, you rarely see the word mindfulness. It's not used very much at all. Um, 
For those of you who are a little nerdy, I'll just say like the principal way of describing the path in early Buddhism is the Eightfold Path, which has mindfulness in it. In Mahayana literature, they don't talk about the Eightfold Path very much. They talk about the six paramitas, which don't have mindfulness in it. So, but you can look more thoroughly and see that it's just, where did that word go? But then if you read the literature more, you see a relentless critique about the whole approach of mindfulness. Because with, from the Mahayana perspective, the problem that we have is our consciousness always cuts reality up, a, a reality which is already totally intimate. We are habituated to cut reality up into little pieces and look at it as if it's all separate. So why on earth would you do a practice that trains the mind to cut it up into little pieces and make the body separate from the body of the universe? The whole thing is the Dharma body. So, for all, when I go to Soto Zen places, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. That's our teaching. Jump immediately into the intimacy that's here. Why wait? You don't have to jump because you're not something else. You can't not be intimate. That's all there is. Oh. But I actually think both approaches, mindfulness, and this radical, non-dual recognition of intimacy are better together than apart. And the principal meditation practice associated with this kind of jumping into intimacy, I would describe as objectless meditation. So this is the practice where we don't pick any object to focus on, and we don't have any object we're trying to achieve or attain. So in the Soto Zen school, we call this shikantaza, or just sitting. In Tibetan schools, they often call it non-meditation, but you can walk into a room and see 300 people going, <laughs> non-meditating, so how about that? Uh, anyway, so we have this uh, objectless meditation and object-based meditation. So I think both these are better together than apart, and this is not an innovation of mine. This is from my study of Vasubandhu and his teachings on Yogacara. And actually, the thing is, because you're all in the Thich Nhat Hanh place, you're probably like, well, this all just sounds like what we do. Because Thich Nhat Hanh, I would argue, is basically a Yogacara teacher. Um, my, uh, I, my last book was called Inside Vasubandhu's Yogacara, which is why Peggy didn't want to say the name. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has multiple books on these same teachings, and you can really see how he's integrating Mahayana's emphasis on non-dualism and intimacy with mindfulness practice. But actually, in many schools of Buddhism, they're not very integrated at all, and one is completely neglected. So you're already doing what I think everyone should do, so never mind. I'll go with <laughs> Anyway, so, uh, so people's capacity to um, realize intimacy or recognize intimacy is personal. And, it's, and it's, uh, it's various, and it depends on conditions in all kinds of different ways. It's not the same. Uh, take a simple example, um, sex, like people having sex together. This can be an experience where people feel incredibly intimate. They feel the boundaries between themselves become very porous or absent. Uh, they can feel their sense of being like a, this separate, needy thing, quiet down. They can feel like energy is moving between two people in this beautiful and amazing way. But sex can also be an incredibly alienating 
experience. So the the thing itself is not, it's like this is what intimacy is. It's experiential and personal and dependent on what's happening in any given moment. And of course, with sex, there's like a whole, and with all these things that I will use as examples, there's a whole range between a, a, a amazing intimacy and, and profound alienation. <clears throat> Me, I am like a, uh, well, I'm in love with where we are. So uh, my, my mother lives in West Glacier, and I have had family in, in western Montana my whole life. So I've been traveling for about a month, and I love seeing the country unfold everywhere. I, I have a night off. I immediately throw up my tent and go hiking into the desert or the woods or on the beach or wherever I've been. It's been wonderful. But when I came out of the high desert of Seattle into the mountains of northwest Montana, I had an immediate and profound sense of connection. I was just like, ah, this is belonging. And I like, ah, oh, got out in the woods and I went and went running up this trail and found a bear and I was like, I love you. <laughs> I love you so much. You're furry. <laughs> So, you know, some people are not like this. They see a bear not feeling connected and intimate in that way. Um, and I've encountered bears in circumstances where it, I felt pretty alienated. <laughs> Terror is not an intimate thing. But this one was, was very nice. Was like, okay. Um, yeah, it's like, so I love, and nature generally evokes this in me in this place even more so. Uh, but it's not so for everyone. My, uh, back in uh, uh, Minnesota, that's where I'm from, I was giving a talk. I was like starting this series of talks on this material about a month ago, and my friend Wayne came up afterwards, and he said, ah, nature's all right, I guess. But, you know, he doesn't feel, he gets outside, and it's kind of dirty. <laughs> no climate control. <laughs> Bears are probably scary. I don't know. So we're not all the same. We're not all the same. How about family? Some people are like, oh, when I get, get into the arms of my family, I feel so connected and my sense of separation and that chattery, selfish thing just settles down and my energy flows to support people and then their energy is flowing to support me. And when I was in Santa Barbara a couple weeks ago, someone said, wait a minute, is that really possible? <laughs> so it's really different. It can be really different. <clears throat> so the basic idea of Buddhism is that we have tendencies of consciousness and they can be transformed. They can be transformed. Well, they're always transforming, but we can participate in that transformation so what is produced is liberative instead of harmful. Cool. So the thing is, whatever our tendencies are around intimacy, we can cultivate our capacity to develop it. And generally speaking, like my model is find those places and recognize them where you feel this and take strength there and build on it and let that support you know what it's like, and then look into those parts of your life where it is not true, and see if you can begin to develop it. So being from Minnesota, it is now a state requirement that we have to talk about prints. <laughs> so uh, my 
My friend Ayo Yatunde has a new academic journal journal called The Theology of Prince. So check that out. Um, but I feel it helped justify me talking about Prince here. Um, so you watch Prince play music, and um, in that watching, you might see Prince just uh, disappear into the complete activity of making those sounds and moving his body. He's a great dancer as well as a musician. And it would just be like, wow, that is like so complete. And then like you'd be in a big room full of people, thousands of people, who would begin to open up into this sense of completeness and some connection and flowing openness. And everyone would be like, purple rain, purple rain. Wow! No one knew what Purple Rain was. No one has any idea. This is one of the reasons that people would open up into intimacy in this context so much. Because it wasn't like, oh, you should feel this way or that. It was mysterious. It was mysterious. So people can not only... Um, find ways to recognize intimacy, but they can help other people to recognize it. They can help other people open up into it. And this is something that everyone here does, some of the time, to some degree. How wonderful. How cool is that? But, as probably many of you know, uh, Prince died alone in an elevator of a drug overdose at the age of 58. And you might think this is an extreme example, but basically I would argue this is how we all are. Everyone here manifests, realizes, and recognizes intimacy at times. And everyone here is wounded, has parts of themselves where their uh, emotional tendencies are going to cause them to feel cut off, and it's going to cause them to do things that are harmful. That's just human. <clears throat> and I bring this up in part, I bring up the example of Prince because he's kind of intense, uh, not just because I want to sing Purple Rain, <laughs> that might be a big part of it, but uh, because we are part of a religious tradition uh, here, where you might be like, what? <laughs> what is it? not a religion? Well, I don't know. Whatever. We can talk about that later. Anyway, so we're part of a cultural tradition, which is 2,500 years old, uh, which involves people um, really developing their ability to recognize intimacy in a profound way. And people who do this are then often empowered to teach. And what they're teaching principally is just being there in a way that helps other people to open up into this intimacy. And you will meet people who have had relationships with their teachers, including me, where something wonderful happened through that process, through person-to-person, -person, uh, as we call in Soto Zen, warm hand-to-warm hand transmission that enables people to recognize a degree of connection that was unimaginable to them before. It's amazing. But we have seen many, many times, again and again, uh, teachers with an amazing capacity to do this do things that were extremely harmful. Many, many cases. 
And uh, in particular, uh, many men who were Dharma teachers have abused their power in order to exploit women sexually. Yes. That's happened in countless schools of Buddhism. And we probably don't even know uh, in close to what's happening. Yet, as I go around the country and I talk about this, many people have come up to me after the talks and said, I want you to know that it's not just men and it's not just sex. Um, Dharma teachers of all genders uh, use power in ways that are, are harmful. So there's lots of work being done in the United States to try and form a, a manifestation of Buddhism where this kind of harm is done less. Uh, I don't know if it's reasonable to hope for it to be done never, because samsara is very powerful. Um, but it's a good, it's really good. I'm really happy this work is being done. I'm happy to be a part of it, and uh, and I invite everyone to recognize that we can be part of, of forming something that's better. And that will be all different kinds of work. It's not going to be like, oh, we did this one thing and I figured it all out. Um, but having said that. Um, I mean, this may be more important in some of the other contexts where I teach, but four schools of Buddhism that really emphasize radically leaping into intimacy or non-dualism, like the one I come from, it's very helpful to use mindfulness tools because they're psychologically precise. So mindfulness is basically a psychological tool that enables you to be careful about parts of yourself that are wounded and take care of them. And consciousness is very tricky. Um, it's very easy to hide parts of ourselves from ourselves. And mindfulness really is a tool for digging out the parts of ourselves we don't want to look at. And then all you have to do is be there with them. It's not like Western psychology where you dig them out and then you blah, 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 blah. Mindfulness is so that you just learn to be aware of them and then sustain awareness on them. And that is already profoundly liberative. <clears throat> So I'm going to uh, read you some little bits here. I'm going to read you the beginning of a chapter called Heart. This book is divided into chapters that are basically just parts of our lives or experience, and then how to develop mindfulness and intimacy in those parts of our lives or experience. So it's chapters like body, mind, heart, community, teachers, family, sex, romance, work, play, ritual. Those like parts of our lives. This one is called heart. <clears throat> Have you ever seen someone laughing in the rain? Or someone stoop-shouldered, shuffling along on a green and sunny day? Perhaps in a time of crisis, you've seen someone respond with resolve and energy, and someone else collapse into fear or despair. Maybe someone you know gets testy, and then you know it's best to leave them alone. When a loved one is dying, sometimes people are overwhelmed with pain and can barely take care of their basic needs. And sometimes they leap into frantic action to avoid their feelings. And at other times, they only know one thing, profound, all-encompassing acceptance and love. I've seen all this in others and in myself as well. One of the clearest insights of my years of meditation is how powerfully my emotions color my experience. Mm -hmm my perception of the world. 
So for uh, people who really like Buddhist doctrine, this is really rooted in the understanding of the Alaya Vijnana, the underlying karmic framework that forms how we view the world. So from uh, probably most of the people in this room, I bet maybe everybody is conditioned to believe that matter is real. That's like, like the floor is a real thing. It's made of atoms, and those are real. And uh, the atoms are made of subatomic particles, which are ultimately real things. So it's a very useful viewpoint, and I'm not telling you that it's wrong or not true. But I just got to say, Buddhism does not affirm this as ultimately true. And I actually just like to say this just to make trouble. But making trouble is actually good because we can get very stuck. So Buddhism pretty consistently affirms a viewpoint that says that our experience is formed by our habits of emotion and cognition. It's radically different at the base. Now, it does say you can have forms of cognition that are very useful, like believing that matter is real <laughs> would be helpful because then you can go, hey, we can figure out how to destroy our planet a little bit less. So that would be good. So science is cool, but I just like to you know, get to that little underpinning. So anyway, the main reason that Buddhism does this is because if you have a materialist viewpoint, that is to say you believe that matter is the ultimately real thing from which everything proceeds, you will habitually believe that the way to promote well-being is to manipulate external material objects. This is why we have a culture in which if you don't feel good, what you should do is you take a drug, which will manipulate your brain chemistry, right? So the reason Buddhism emphasizes that our experience is constructed by our habits of emotion and mind is not for philosophical purposes. It is to give you power. Because if you view the world in that way, or at least use it as part of the way you view the world, you will recognize that you have the power to condition your mind to experience the world in a way where what you're producing is liberation instead of harm, or peace instead of harm, or happiness instead of suffering, however you want to frame it. So the thing is, for me, like if I'm really grumpy, it's like things are stupid and wrong everywhere I go. It's amazing. And then I'm happy, and, and you know, someone's like, I'm so miserable. And you're like, why don't you just cheer up? <laughs> don't do that. So uh, emotions powerfully condition experience. So, so this framework of viewing the world as our, or our experience, more accurately, as being constructed by our habits of emotion and mind, then drives Buddhism to emphasize the practice of being aware of how you feel. And now, and I, I would argue personally, I think there is nothing, if you're interested in having a world where there's less suffering, I don't think there's anything more helpful than you could do than be aware of how you feel. Mm -hmm. it, by the way, that doesn't mean thinking about how you feel, which is a totally different thing. That's thinking. Really being aware of how you feel as a feeling state itself, not as a thing that is thought about. So from karmic theory, which is this the theory which underlies the idea that your experience is produced by habits of emotion and cognition. Basically, any and this you all take on Han people, you're gonna be like on board. He's always talking about this, this is straight yoga chara doctrine, but it's cool. So anyway, 
Any cognitive or emotional act plants a seed in consciousness that will cause a similar experience to occur. So, for example, if you have, I'm going to choose a feeling of irritation. You have a feeling of irritation, it's going to plant a seed so that later on you will feel irritated. If you think this sounds mysterious, just think the first time you ever saw, take a baby and, and show it a red traffic light. Doesn't have any problem with that at all. You're like, whoa, what? Wow. But you, when you see a red traffic light, irritation. Why? Because you cultivated, with the help of your whole community, by planting seeds of irritation at traffic light after traffic light, the ability to feel irritated at traffic lights. Wonderful. What's community for? So, <laughs> this is just one very simple example that you can tease out your whole emotional life in this way. So the reason this happens is, generally speaking, emotional states are not seen as emotional states. So when we're irritated, you're not like deeply intimate with the feeling of irritation. You're like, I'm just liking to change. Or you're not even aware that you don't like the light. And you're like, why does this song suck so much? <laughs> Steppenwolf again? So, <laughs> but, so what happens is, because the process happens without being directly known, that's why a new seed of irritation is planted for your future. So the past experience of irritation planted a seed. That seed bears fruit, irritation right now. Because you're not aware of the irritation itself, another seed is planted unconsciously. Conversely, and here's the root of power, if you can't directly know the feeling state as it arises, so you're just like, ah, the previous conditioning bears fruit. There's irritation. Ah, experience. And then, it bars fruit. Its power is exhausted. And instead of planting another seed unconsciously, you plant new seeds. What kind of seeds are you planting? Seeds of compassionate awareness. Because you're just being there with the feeling state. All compassion means is with suffering. So it doesn't have to be some fancy thing. You're just like, oh, this is the feeling. I'm here with it. And then... Instead of a seed of irritation, a seed of compassion and awareness is planted. And if you do this over and over again, you're making offerings each time with drops in an ocean. And the ocean of suffering we're in is really big. There's like 5 billion people. I go around, I talk to all these communities, and I think, this is really cool, we're doing this. And then I leave, and there's a church that holds like 5,000 people across the street. We, there's so many people with so much life. So it may seem, it's like, really just drops? But that's what we get. Moment to moment, opportunities to put a drop of compassion into the world. Start with your own emotional condition. Then you'll be able to turn it and provide it to other people. And it's powerful. It's powerful. So I'm going to read you another little bit. This, uh, so as I... Get ready to travel around and talk about a book. It's like you're supposed to read something. So what are you going to read? Not the whole book, I hope. That would take a long time. Um, so i got to pick something. And uh, the reason I picked this chapter is because it's about someone I love, uh, someone I admire, and someone I find really inspiring. So Tomoe Katagiri is, as far as I know, the first person to teach the sewing of Zen monks' robes in the United States. So in our tradition, we sew our own ritual garments. And many people, this is their principal practice, is hand sewing with their whole being, pouring themselves into that activity. So she brought this from Japan to the United States. 
Tomoy, uh, her husband, Diane Katakiri, came to the U.S. in the early 60s to assist at San Francisco Zen Center, and then some Minnesotans convinced them to move to Minnesota, probably without telling them about the weather. <laughs> and they moved there, founded the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, where I practice and teach. Uh, Dainan, our founder, died about 25 years ago, but Tomoy is still alive. She's not teaching sewing anymore because she can't see stitches, but she's still very wonderful. This chapter is called Teachers. Tomoe Katagiri taught me well, mostly by staying by my side and quietly pouring her energy into what we were doing together. Tomoe-san helped bring the art of sewing Zen monks robes from, in, from Japan to the United States, and she was my teacher in sewing the robes that symbolized my ordination. She gave me precise instruction on the technical aspects of sewing, with which I am far from adept. This is so true. But to me, her real teaching lay in her embodiment of patience, attention to the present moment, and quiet, warm intimacy. It was not uncommon, as we worked side by side, for us to be silent for an hour at a time to support wholehearted focus on each stitch. After the entire robe is sewn, which took me about a year, it is carefully ironed and folded, precisely. Ironed and folded like origami. I frequently found the sewing process frustrating. Oh my God, it was hard. But she just calmly stitched away beside me. I recall the moment when I finished the final stitch, a moment I had been waiting for. I said, Tomoy, I finished the robe. I was ready for a birthday cake or maybe some fireworks. <laughs> she put down her sewing and moved to stand up and she said, I'll turn on the iron. <laughs> I don't think she was consciously teaching me, but she brought me right back to what was in front of me. She modeled not living for some other time when the current task, the current manifestation of life, is done. She hadn't been waiting for me to finish, and she realized nothing is ever really finished. Life goes on. All things connect. She took care of the world by focusing on the life at hand, and that was teaching enough for me. So as a teacher, my principal interest is in encouraging people to recognize and remember that in every single moment, they have liberative agency. I believe this to be the underlying fundamental message of Buddhism. The Four Noble Truths says there's suffering in the world, and you can do something about it. My friend converted to Judaism. He said, Ben, we got to get together. I'll tell you about Judaism. And you can tell me about Buddhism. I said, great. So we got together and he told me wonderful things about Judaism. And then I said, Buddhism is wonderful. At the root is this idea that in every moment, you can do something to free the world from suffering. And he said, oh my God, so much pressure. <laughs> so, sometimes messages require refinement. Um, but the Four Noble Truths 
Although I say it says they're suffering and you could do something about it, then it actually gives a very specific methodology for what to do. The Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth. And in simplest terms, that is refraining from harm and taking care of, of what's here in your own being. So slowing down. If you really want to free people from suffering, slowing down helps. So there's a wonderful book called Emergent Strategy by an activist named Adrian Marie Brown. And she said, whenever you just get so freaked out, you're just like, I gotta run out of the thing! <laughs> just remember, that is the energy that got us all in this mess in the first place. So it doesn't mean you shouldn't go out in the street. Otherwise, I'm doing it wrong. But we can bring a presence and an awareness of our connection to that action. Intimacy. Recognizing intimacy through the whole process. Dr. King, in the letter from Birmingham Jail, says, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. What does it look like when we begin to recognize intimacy? You can't sit idly by. Your energy flows. So we can keep looking, though. There are places where we won't recognize our intimacy and our energy will not flow. So keep looking. Keep opening. And don't forget that you have an amazing capacity to do something for everyone. Every moment. Slow down. Take care of this. All right. Well, thank you. I think for me just talking and talking and talking, that's probably a good amount of that. And then uh, the next thing would be other people talking. So um, I believe in all kinds of talking. So questions are cool. That's a cool way of talking. Um, but if you have answers, that's, that's cool too. Yeah, so I think we'll listen to the bell first. <laughs>